This is the Imperfect Buddha podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at O'ConnellCoaching.com. Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. I'm on today with a guest we've had before, which is Glenn Wallace. Hi, Glenn. Welcome to the show. Hi, Matthew. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to see you again. And I think we've got some interesting things to talk about. This um, podcast episode is actually part of the Insight Seminar series, but I think we're going to end up talking about a couple of other things as well. But let's start off by talking about Insight. Um, Why did you decide to start this initiative? What was it that drove you to do so? The main impetus was that I wanted to bring high-level education, ideas from the history of ideas, from philosophy and literature and so forth, basically from the humanities. And I wanted to bring these seminars to the public. I wanted to make a certain kind of educational experience available to the general public. That was the basic idea, to take expertise, to take knowledge uh, out of the, the corporate university and bring it into you know, the the city where people can participate. That was the basic idea. I mean, the impetus of it was just a certain kind of despair around the election of Donald Trump in a sense that I had to do something. There's a general sense around here of people not knowing what to do. But my first sort of one thing I can do is create educational experiences. So I just sort of on a whim without thinking too much about it, started putting together this idea that is now Insight Seminars. So we're talking to you today in part, not just because you set this up, you're about to be presenting your own seminar as part of this this initiative, which is all about darkness. Now, why did you decide to bring a topic like darkness to this event? I think the, the original, sort of the immediate impetus was I was reading an essay by Hannah Arendt called something like... Uh, Men in Dark Times or something like that, where she's writing right after World War II about, about the difficulty of, of action and of knowing how to act and of even having the will to act in very, very dark times. And that was sort of the immediate cause in a way. But prior to that, I've been, um, I did, a, I did a, a course in the local college, Penn State Abington, uh, on a, a humanities course where we were reading literature on um, sort of anti-humanist literature on what is often called the tyranny of positivity. That is such an integral part of American ideology. Um, specifically, we read this book by Barbara Ehrenreich called Bright-Sided. All those ideas were percolating in my head, at, not as if I needed them. I know I've grown up in a society that is almost hyper-manically affirmative, even in the face of evidence that we should be pessimistic. So this is just a general theme, really, in American society is uh, is 
the willful willful ignorance of anything that smacks of pessimism, anything that that is you know has a frown on it is dark, perceived as dark or negative or something. So um, it's a theme I've, I'm always interested in, always thinking about. But I think that the Hannah Arndt essay was really the immediate the immediate impetus because we are men, we are people now in dark times. At least there's that perception here in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, not just in the United States, I guess. I think it's sort of uh, saturating the Western world as a whole. And of course, it's not just Trump, right? It's also the, the environmental disaster that we don't seem to be doing much about. Right. There's there's so much. There's For a long time, it felt like politics in America was somewhere in the center, and it was this globalized politics where it felt like there was at least this illusion that, that the world was moving slowly towards finding solutions to our biggest our biggest problems, whether with, you know, g- global, environmental, whatever, that illusion uh, is no longer possible to maintain. So, yeah, there's a sense that uh, of some sense of impotence and not knowing what to do. So darkness seems like um, a term that captures these times. So I thought I'd just have offer a seminar that explores the nature of darkness. I have a dictionary de- definition in front of me that kind of points to what I think is a certain prejudice we have against darkness. Of course, the part of the definition is is just a scientific one, that it's an absence of light. And that, Of course, that comes into play metaphorically in literature and religion as uh, a kind of ignorance or gloom, you know, of a not knowing and so forth. Uh, but then the, the second big part of the definition is wickedness or evil. The old English term for darkness even meant something like sin, uh, unhappiness, distress, Secrecy, but a kind of, uh, you know, a, a secrecy like con- con- conspiratorial secrecy, where mm-hmm. something evil is in the works. Lack of spiritual or intellectual enlightenment, ignorance. These are these are the basic definitions of darkness, which to me points to a deep sort of. There's actually a term for it called nictophobia. I'm not mm-hmm. sure how you say it. And uh, fear of the dark. And so I just started thinking about darkness, and I started thinking about. The different aspects of it. For example, yes, it has this aspect of unknowingness. That metaphor of unknowingness also shows up in literature and philosophy and in religion as a kind of potentially fruitful unknowingness. You know, the cloud of unknowing. You know, God somehow hides in the face of the deep and darkness. He hides in the cloud, the thick darkness of, of nothingness. Darkness has a sense of there's something soothing about the darkness as well. There's mm-hmm. something there's something comforting in the darkness about the darkness. There's a certain, what's the word? It, it's an equalizer of differences. I mean, everything's sort of achromatic in the darkness. You don't see the colors aren't really distinguished the darker it is, right? Yeah. So darkness to me is very interesting, but I was mostly interested in the kind of emotional darkness that I, I sense in the people around me it's always been there. It's just maybe we're in times now where it can no longer be contained or we can no longer isolate it and distract ourselves from it. So it seems like a very apt, very apt theme to just to explore a little bit right now. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that the point you mentioned about not being able to avoid it is probably a good thing, right? There seems to be, as is often the case with crises, a sort of wake-up call, a sort of sobriety, a demand for us to be more present with circumstances. But I think another feature as well that comes to my mind, because I work with a lot of young 
folks, um, high school and university students, is that there's this sense of a loss of the future. Um, I think in both our generations, there was this sense that, that things could get better or were getting better. And maybe the idea that they are getting better always was part of that sort of uh, opt American optimism. But that seeped out into the world. And I think I grew up with that too. And I think the pessimism that seems to be accompanying some folks is this recognition, perhaps, that the future is, is almost no longer available uh, in terms of opportunity of, of this light being available. There's actually <laughs> perhaps just darkness. <laughs> right. And that also has a certain, um, I'm not, I was about to say positive side. I'm not sure what the word is. It has a, a, a repercussion that is not only negative, and that might be that this younger generation, I think you're absolutely right. They, they sense that there's no future and they have, there's a lot of evidence for it as well in terms of you know, the economy, unemployment, lack of job growth and all that sort of thing. But that generation also I see, and I've seen this firsthand, is getting much more more active, socially aware and socially active as I have not seen. I mean, I was I was a little kid in the 60s, so I, I got a little bit of that, what was happening in the 60s. I don't think it's happened since the 60s in America, that sense of, of uh, well, then we have to act. We have to make things happen. We have to demand changes and we have to organize and perform direct actions and so forth. So I don't know how it is in Italy, but that certainly is the case here in the United States and here in Philadelphia. Well, I, I would suggest it's very similar here. I think for countries like Italy and Spain, the dream until relatively recently was the idea that you could go to Northern Europe and find a future there. But with Brexit happening, and the you know global crisis, but in particular the the European crisis of immigration. I think a lot of folks that are just leaving high school now don't feel that that's available to them either. And yes. It's as if opportunities are closing. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, I'm a Brit and I live in Italy, so if I think about Britain, it tends to be closer to what's taking place in America. And I would agree with you. I think the good side of what's happening is that there's a lot more political engagement from younger generations. But that said, I, I think it's very, very recent. And um, if we look at like the the referendum that led to Brexit, there, there was still a pretty poor um, showing in terms of the younger folks uh, just not showing up to vote, not really participating. And I think perhaps at least for them, that was the wake up call. They realized afterwards that they lost hope when Brexit happened. And in part, it was due to the fact that they were not politically engaged. And I think that has triggered more, more engagement from many, many folks. And I, I would agree with you that it's very positive. That will be the question. That's something we'll keep our eye on is whether um, not voting, not being involved in the sort of congressional, parliamentarian, whatever you want to call it, process is a sign of not being politicized. There, there's a sense. I was in a meeting the other day at a, an anarchist bookstore here, and there were probably 50 people there under the age of 30, and they were the activists. There were people who actually go out on the streets and perform, you know, direct actions. Like right now, they're occupying ICE. That's the immigration people who are taking away immigrants and their children in America. It's called ICE, I-C-E. Mm -hmm. um, these people sort of disdain the notion of voting and trying to what they basically disdain is is liberal solutions to the current situations, which involve operating from within the system. So they've kind of given up hope on that. And they say, you know, voting, running for Congress, that's all fine and good. But we need we need something much more drastic and radical to happen. In a sense, I read I read a biography of Emma Goldman recently. In a sense, what's happening now, at least rhetorically, in terms of a lot of the language I'm hearing, reminds me of 
the good old days of anarchism, you know, the 1890s to the 1920s, where people were sort of giving up on liberal possibilities of, of reforming institutions and systems and, and really just calling for much more more, more radical approaches, the, the sense being that they're captured and caught and there are no real grounds for optimism or no real grounds for hope that anything will change. So just to go back to something you said before, to tie it back to something you said before, there's something about this notion of, of darkness and pessimism that is rooted in a sense that it accepts the hypothesis of the worst, like expect the worst to happen, the worst possible thing that can happen, happens all the time, it's happening all the time in the future, and it's probably going to happen in the future. So out of that kind of pessimism, how do you act? How do you form ideas for actions in the future? How do you find a little sliver of hope in all of that? Out of the pessimism, out of the the real world rooted experience that, that things most often go wrong, or most often disappointing in some sense. That's a little bit what this is about. How do you operate out of that sense of darkness and pessimism in a way that doesn't foreclose on change, doesn't give up on any possibility, but is a radically different uh, mode of of thinking, a, a different model of thinking than the usual affirmative, positive, proactive, so forth, ways of thinking that we're always told are necessary to progress yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you put it that way because I just had a flick through some of the news and one of them that popped up which is connected to the topic that I'll be talking about with Ron Ron Purser very soon, this neoliberal ideology and its role in the creation of well, many facets of modern day society. It was talking about universities outsourcing mental health services uh, despite soaring demand, and I think part of that soaring demand is connected to this idea of the loss of, of a future. But one of the, the things that's happening in the UK, I don't know what it's like in the States, is that counselling resources, you know, psychotherapy resources that were available within universities in all of them, uh, because of the greater increase in depression and suicide amongst uh, university students, they're actually changing the whole game they're playing and they're turning it into well-being resources. <laughs> Can you believe it? Well-being yeah. resources. Yeah. And this is interesting because it picks up on the shift, you know, of the burden of the university to help onto the individual who's actually now responsible for their state. And they're actually being asked, in a sense, this connects to what you've just said, to actually remain hopeful and to actually suppress, in a sense, this this experience of pessimism or loss. Right. You know, I'll read you just one line because it's going to ring very familiar to you. It says, well-being is a broader approach to mental health that includes healthy eating, mindfulness, stress-relieving activities such as yoga and meditation. (laughs) (laughs) that kind of speaks for itself doesn't it and it's it's accompanied by the way by another text uh, about the Sakyong uh, leader of Shambhala this is in the Guardian today it's it's become a big story stepping down because of his sexual assault claim so it's all rather interesting that's slightly off topic but I think I think in terms of practice I think there might be something that could be said because the darkness is something that I think can simultaneously excite as well as strike fear in others Right. So I don't know if you're going to be exploring this in your seminar, but one of the areas, and I think one of the antidotes to the sort of excessive positivism of much Western spirituality and Buddhism is bringing hope and pessimism or the loss of hope into a more sort of tangible experiential relationship. Yes, that is very uh, much the idea. And what you describe 
the outsourcing of mental health and the language around wellness and all that is is not at all peripheral or unconnected to, to what I'm talking about here. I mean, so one thing that's happening is a lot of academics are coming to the conclusion, like there's always this idea that the the university represented a kind of liberal space, maybe even a left space, because there's always the criticism that there are all these Marxists in the humanities and the university. Right. And there, at least it was able to support its own self-delusion, or maybe there was actually some truth in it at the time, like, I don't know, 60s, 70s, into the 80s, maybe, that the university was a place that resisted the encroachment of capitalism, neoliberal kind of capitalism to swallow up all the institutions in its wake and so forth. No one believes that anymore. So now there's a sense in academia in America that the university is a tried and true, bona fide neoliberal institution. We train people. We create, you know, in the languages we use around the Buddhism and the speculative non-Buddhism stuff, you know, we create subjects who uh, subscribe to the ideology. We replicate that endlessly. And that's what we are and that we have to survive. And part of the survival is these kids have to stay well for four years. They have to buy our product because we've grown to such massive proportions because that's part of the idea of capitalism. You must continually grow. You don't grow, you're stagnating. So you continue to go, you have these massive, massive universities that are extraordinarily expensive to run. So you need all these students to stay healthy, you know, a scare, a scare quotes, healthy for four years. So there's all this talk about retention. That's what the big talk is now is assessment and retention. How do we assess whether we do what we say we're doing and how do we keep the students here for four years buying our product? So that wellness stuff you describe is very much part of that strategy of keeping the students going for four years and then comes into stuff. What are we assessing? One thing we're assessing, are we giving them certain kind of tools, certain kind of ideology that they will become obedient servants of the state? And a big part of that is this fear of the dark, you know, fear of if you start talking about feeling despair and lonely and isolated and alienated and hopeless, that's depression. We have something for that, coupled with the neoliberal notion that it's all about you. It's not. There's nothing in the system creating this. You're creating this. Your state of mind is creating this, and you have to find a solution. You have to be resilient. You're vulnerable, because human beings are, and it's a brutal system. Because of vulnerability, you must find a way to be resilient. That's language that started out in neoliberal economic circles, but now it's it's the language of mindfulness and meditation, the resilience training and all that. So it's all connected. I definitely I see that it's all connected in the way you say there. Yeah. I wrote an article about neoliberalism, mindfulness, and Buddhism recently. Yeah, that's a great piece, by the way. It's, it's, it's big and long, and I haven't gotten through the whole thing, but it looks like a really important piece. Okay, thanks. Yeah, you'll, you'll let me know what you think about it. It's interesting, this whole neoliberal idea of the individual being robust and developing coping strategies, right? And the emphasis that the individual is responsible for everything. It reminds me of why someone like Slavoj Žižek would insist that Buddhism is such a good fit to neoliberal ideology because it focuses on the individual, right? And it yes. focuses on the individual capacity to work with their own mind and to look nowhere else. Right. And certainly mindfulness seems to have picked up that same sort of uh, conceptual framework for understanding the individual and their suffering. Um, 
But let's, let's be honest, Glenn. I mean, you know, that, that aside, uh, for most folks looking at the darkness, engaging with pessimism, uh, there is the fear of depression. And since we're so much more aware of it, I think people are acutely aware of the risk of ending up down a very dark hole that they can't climb out of. I think in part that's probably due to the fact that we don't have very honest conversations about the darker edges of our human psyche, whether individual or collective. Um, mm. I wonder. I wonder how you're going to approach that because obviously you won't want to just sort of paint a very positive picture of darkness you'll want to be you know i assume um wide in your discussion and exploration of what darkness symbolizes but how would you you know how would you approach that side of things because you know pessimism can be understood not necessarily as a condition that you're trapped in but as as, as a mode of inquiry um yes. how would you take that challenge then how are you going to take that challenge in this workshop to i don't know create a space in which people can perhaps be honest about such fears but also not fall down the proverbial dark black hole i mean that's of course a very good question i don't know if you saw the the announcement for this class but i have this quote from nietzsche there he says i am a forest and a dark and a night of dark trees, but he who is not afraid of my darkness will find banks full of roses under my cypresses. And then, of course, I wrote, or maybe not, maybe there are no roses under those cypress <laughs> trees, but only more darkness. What then? Yeah. There, so Nietzsche is doing something there that is a kind of, I would call it a kind of flinching. There is this darkness. It's terrifying. It's unknowing. You will experience all sorts of, you know, heavy kinds of, you know, of, of emotions and, and so forth. But there, there's an outcome that will be good. I, that's a kind of romantic pessimism in a way that mm -hmm. says it's right. always, there's always something at the end of this dark journey or whatever. Um, I, I don't necessarily believe that. I mean, what, what the idea of the seminars is, that's why I called, that's why I named it Insight Seminars. And that is for the listeners who've never read anything about it, it's I-N-C-I-T-E. It's not I-N-S-I-G-H-T, although it's playing on that. The thinking was that it was very much coming out of this sense of, of not knowing what to do anymore, the sense of impotence and ignorance. And the idea was rather than me be aligned to some sorts of you know, organizations or forms of thought that that have an agenda for people and a program. And if you practice a program, things will go well for you. That's not for me, not at these times. Rather, I would try to like to create an environment that might just might incite something. It might spark, you know, rouse and courage, whatever, you know, synonym you want to use some some insight or some action or some new formation. Maybe you know, I've had people go on off and they've started discussion groups out of our seminars. This is driven very much by a sense, is very much a sense of trying to find where the, where the cracks are and see if something can grow out of those cracks. Maybe not. I mean, I'm not operating with this idea that something productive has to be the end result of what we're doing Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I'm leaving it that a kind of a, it's kind of an explosion is created and I don't know how things are going to fall. And mm -hmm. yeah, you're right. There's a certain ethics to that. I, I haven't had to deal with that yet because the people who come come to these seminars so far have been, you know, relatively healthy minded, stable individuals. But on the other hand, I mean, people are dealing with a lot of depression and sadness and so forth. And it's, it's there permanently, or at least it seems to be, and they're operating with it. And maybe one solution is to find a collective, a group of people to help work through it with. Mm -hmm. 
maybe the old models are getting therapy and medication. I mean, how long have we been trying that? Maybe that's led us in some way to the opioid crisis. I don't know. Um, I'm not operating with the attitude of having answers. It's more of a, the idea is to create an environment where something interesting might happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me think, to mention Buddhism again, of one of the more interesting phrases that old Chogyam Trungpa produced, which was this idea that practice, in a sense, should be the loss of hope. Yeah. And I think in his more lucid moments, that was part of what made him so interesting. Right in much of his his teachings. And I, I think that's perhaps one of the, the spaces of practice which is most avoided by many contemporary Western Buddhists, um, but also perhaps by, by teachers too. And it's often the ripest ground for a breakthrough in terms of, of genuine insight into the shared human condition. So, mm-hmm. yes. yeah, it's, it's, it's all interesting. Pessimism, though, you know, pessimism, nihilism, these things tend to go together. You did mention Nietzsche. Um, I think I saw Schopenhauer on the list of authors that you're going to be exploring. He, yes. of course, has a connection to Buddhism in some sense, but is, was also famously uh, understood to be a pessimist. Yes. Uh, is that generally true? What, what thought of his are you going to be bringing into the, the seminar? Actually, I think I'm not going to read Schopenhauer. No. I, I was looking for some clips, some fragments. I'm putting together a reader for the course. Mm. I mean, I'm also trying to introduce some other thinkers who people might not be as familiar with, like Pessoa, Charin. I don't know if you know him. No, no. People know Nietzsche, but not a lot of people have actually read him. Hannah Arendt and, or this guy, I don't know if you've ever heard of Peter Wesel Zapfa. He's one of these so-called anti-natalist. He actually has a very interesting theory about consciousness that like consciousness is kind of an excess. We have consciousness in excess so that unlike the animals who live in the midst of birth, growth, decay, and death, uh, seemingly unperturbed for the most part, human beings are profoundly perturbed by it. And so they develop these strategies to inoculate them or in some sense zombify them in the midst of this consciousness that is actually aware of the black universe, you know, decay, you know, sort of the, you know, the infinite abyss. So I might, I might read some Zapfa as well. So people are less familiar with him. I'm, I'm going to read some Ligotti. I don't know. Have you ever heard of Thomas Ligotti? No, no. <laughs> I don't know any of these chaps. <laughs> That's why I'm interested in presenting some figures who are more in the periphery. They're not, they're certainly not part of the big canon like Schopenhauer. Right. Nietzsche is, of course, but like I said, a lot of people really haven't actually read him. I'm just trying to put together a reader, a reader of tech that exude this darkness that I'm talking about, that recognize it, that uh, don't flinch from it, and that the text itself. Like it's not just like an expository text on darkness or pessimism, but it actually uh, enacts that for you know the reader reading it is confronted you know with or encompassed by the darkness or pessimism. What I'm hearing in, in what you're saying is that these texts, in a sense, act to invoke a specific flavor of this darkness. Yeah, I, I'd like to find find texts that, that I, I'm not sure what the right language is, but that they're, they're not representing darkness or pessimism or negation, but they're actually, they're performing it. And the reader is performing it along with the text. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you know of texts like this, that in the very careful reading of the text, certain emotions are coming into play, certain ideas, certain representations are appearing to you that 
that alter your way of thinking or being in some way. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a strong a strong engagement with the text. Yeah. Nietzsche is very Nietzsche is famous for that. It, it's easy to find stuff in Nietzsche mm-hmm. like that. Mm. Another person that comes to mind is a chap we've spoken about before, and of course he's connected to Hannah Arendt, which is uh, Martin Heidegger. Yes. Uh, you know, if we're talking about darkness, this is a topic we, we picked up in one of our previous conversations. I think he's, he's hard work to get through, but, you know, if you get the right, the right passage, um, he's very, his, his language is very good at invoking certain qualities of insight right. or a break from a certain sense of consistency, right? Yes, that's actually it's interesting you say that because I start off the whole thing. It, it's meant to set the tone very much, as you just mentioned, this is ideas from Gilles Deleuze. I'm sure you've heard of him. Mm-hmm. He's another thinker people have, are hearing about more and more, but not haven't necessarily read. I, I start the whole thing with this passage of his, the idea that there's a strangeness to Heidegger. It's made, what made me think about this. Deleuze says, thinking is always experiencing experimenting, not interpreting, but experimenting. And what we experience, experiment with, is always actuality, what's coming into being, what's new, what's taking shape. Uh Concepts are what stops thought from being mere opinion, a mere view, an exchange of views, gossip. The only condition is that these new concepts should have a necessity as well as a strangeness. And then he goes on to talk about the thinking he has in mind is a kind of dangerous exercise because it's 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 operating within these cracks within the the state of the situation that I just alluded to. And he says, precisely because the plane of imminence is pre-philosophical or you could say pre-representational mm-hmm. and does not immediately take effect with concepts, it this this kind of dangerous thinking implies a sort of groping experimentation and its layout resorts to measures that are not very respectable, rational, or reasonable. These measures belong to the order of dreams, of pathological processes, esoteric experiences, drunkenness, and excess. We head for the horizon on the plane of eminence, and we return with bloodshot eyes, yet they are the eyes of the mind. And he says, you know, to think is always to follow the witch's flight. So I'm trying to create this what we're actually reading is not so important or the ideas and we're not trying to like grapple with the ideas of, of Nietzsche or Charin or whoever. It's rather trying to initiate this witch's flight of, mm. of dangerous thought that Deleuze is talking about. And, and, and of course, you know, darkness is a big element of this, this sort of mythos of, of, of the, the sorcerer or the witch, right? Yep. So it obviously involves tapping into that or embracing mm-hmm. that in some sense. Yeah. Um, you know, the word that comes to mind here is provocation. Yes. And, you know, if I think about much of, nice. much of your work and the aspects of your work that I've enjoyed the most, they, they have that quality that you've described in Deleuze. Right. Um, and it's something that I feel, you know, a strong affinity for. And my view has long been that, you know, maybe it's a concept, <laughs> but uh, my view has been that, you know, this is the neglected side of the potential within Buddhism. You might agree with me on that one, that, you know, the notion of waking up, you know, in, in, in a more visceral sense can only really happen if there's provocation taking place. Yes. If you're not provoked out of your stupor, right. then all you're doing 
as you know, you've said, and, and I've begun to say too, is just reproduce a pre-existing order. Yes. And you know, there's no imagination or creativity to be found in any of that, unless right. it's in the hiding of it or the masking of it. Right. That's an interesting term. Do you say imaginative creativity, or what, how, how did you put that? I, a lot of what this is is you know, what we're doing here is sort of training the imagination to imagine currently non-existent states of affair. And you're right. I, I would read Buddhism as being very, very, like, primarily interested in that very project. Yeah. And that it provides concepts also in this Deleuzian sense, you know, powerful forms of thought that don't conform to pre-existing modes of being or thinking that can really serve that alteration, you know, that you're talking about here. And it is very much a training of the imagination. I agree with you. And that's a big part of my work is trying to recapture that potential within Buddhist thought that doesn't just make you rest at ease in the current state of the situation, but actually provokes, to use your word, as a provocation in relation to that best state of affairs. You know, going back to sort of reservations that you've expressed, there's a lot at stake in such a provocation. Like ethically, the person who's doing the provoking, and there's a lot at stake for the person who's undergoing the provocation. I mean, because real genuine provocation, a real genuine um, refusal to participate with the current state of the situation, it has consequences. It has real serious consequences, right? Yep. With, with livelihood, with your circle of friends, with your sense of identity and self, and so forth. And, I, and I, I've seen these, uh, these consequences play out in people's lives, and they're, they're very real. Um, and when people experience them, then they start realizing in a very serious way you know, non-romantic way, they start realizing that, oh, there is this actual state of affairs. There is this this compulsion to conform and this demand to conform to it. And there are consequences if I don't. But again, it's it's very much an ethical issue about how you want to live, live a life or how you want to form, like I'm doing here with Insight Seminars, what kind of institution you want to form. You know, one that makes people rest at ease and get along better or one that does perform a kind of provocation like you're talking about. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and perhaps the, the other word that sort of implicitly accompanies the, the whole notion of darkness and people's resistance to it is risk. Yeah. Going back to the whole idea of waking up or, or using Buddhism more productively in terms of seeking out what it is that holds you back or keeps you within a, a given ideological framework, a key word is risk and, and coming to understand that risk is directly related to the capacity that a person has to actually engage with what's real. Yes. Would you agree that along with risk, since, since it is inherently r risky, uh, whatever your personality or your character, your dispositions are, it seems to me like it's necessary to invoke and even encourage something like courage in, in this process, that's something that's often left out in, say, Buddhist discourses, for example, because of the riskiness of it, a kind of existential courage, you know, it's, is required. And, yes. and that's something that has to be aroused and strengthened and maintained over time. You know, it also happens, of course, that people do this kind of work, this, they, they give thought to the state of the situation and themselves as players within it and so forth, and they come to the conclusion that they're perfectly fine with it. This is actually something that came up in this uh, this blog interaction I had with, with Scott Mitchell recently. It was a question that came up was, um, I said in a sort of snarky way on one of my posts that 
these uh, mindfulness teachers must want to alter the current so- social formation because it's a it generates suffering. Um, mm. He took that literally in a way. I was saying like if we read their rhetoric and their text, we must we can extrapolate from that that they must actually want this. I know they don't. I mean, it's obvious that they don't by looking at their products and so forth. But so we got into a little discussion about that, and, and part of the discussion, you know, he was claiming rightly so, and I agree with him, is that uh, all, awful lot of these teachers. Um, they embrace capitalism and everything that comes along with it. And same with other people who, you know, they might be educated about certain ideas and come to the conclusion that they reject them and they're fine being subjects within the current state of the situation, right? That's a possibility mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not like we, we possess some sort of hard left truth here and we're trying to get people to see it. It's, again, just another ideological position that I would offer good reasons for having. They're not absolute reasons and not inscribed in the universe, but pretty good reasons, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we should make sure we don't forget to tell listeners where the workshop is going to take place and how they can find out more and get involved. The workshop will be at a, a place called Culture Works at 1315 Walnut Street in Philadelphia. Was it Saturday, August 4th from 9 to 1? It's on the third floor of 1315 Walnut Street. And the website, if I'm not mistaken, is just Insight Seminars, spelt in the correct way. Right. <laughs> correct way being I-N-C-I-T-E. <laughs> <laughs> Although people will get the other insight, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good. So um, one of the questions I threw at you, I mean, you, you started talking about this blog exchange you had with this chap, Scott. The, I found that interesting. And in the end, I, I kind of set it aside. Perhaps I'd be more interested in asking you how it's going with the speculative non-Buddhism website. Um, there have been some posts over the last few months that I've read and garnered a, a nice, rich and engaged participation in terms of comments yeah. Um, what's what's your what's your relationship with the website at present? And, and you know, what's your sort of I don't want to say vision, but I'm going to say vision. What's your vision of the site for the upcoming months or years? Well, I was hoping that the site would move away from the more critical instantiations and critical analyses of uh, teachers or ideas or whatever, and would move in more to something that I'm calling a Budo fiction, which is simply just creative, imaginative work that takes Buddhist ideas and depotentialized Buddhist ideas, meaning that they're no longer beholden to the Buddhist system as a whole, to create interesting texts with that material. I, I think I was naive, though, in thinking that that was so obvious to people what that meant and how they might go about doing that. So it kind of stalled. Yeah, it's it stalled. Like, and I got emails from people like, what do you actually have in mind? What do you what do you mean by this? I, I have a book coming out. And in that book, I the last chapter is my an example of a Buddha fiction of my creation. That, you know, it's just one of many possibilities. Um, but in the meantime, people have said they like on the blog, they like these kind of anthropological posts we've been doing where we say, I say we because Tom Pepper also came up with in the the first example of this, that let's go look at this website. Let's go, let's go, uh, let's sign up for this online retreat and let's do a kind of analysis of it along certain lines, so ideological analysis. And, yeah, and people, people found that interesting. So I've done a couple of those. 
the last one, that one I did, that post I did, is this the end? The one that Scott Mitchell was uh, responding to that just came out of like, just kind of that, that was a suggestion let's go, let's do this online seminar with, was it Shambhala? I forget. And I just started, I signed up for it. I, I listened to some of the tapes and the, the, the presentations and I read some of it and I was just, I was just kind of shocked in a way at what I was reading. So I just wrote that out of this, this sense of, I, I don't know what the right word is. I can, I really be shocked about this, but I really had a sense that, that <laughs> things tipped over hmm. into a, a mode of presentation in a way that uh, is no longer even trying to pretend to, to be something else, something else being looking at Buddhist ideas and concepts of practices is doing another kind of work other than this kind of resting at ease, finding, finding peace and tranquility and, and so forth. It just seems like it's, the, you know, younger people, whoever it is who's, who's doing this, the Buddhist agents operating in the world today, they've co-opted it to that to this extent that I never felt like I really saw before. So I wrote that post out of that sense of, mm-hmm. of I don't know, kind of a sense of despair in a way, asking the question, really, is how have we come to the end? Is, is Buddhism now, or these, the potential for Buddhist thought to be taken seriously by serious thinkers, is that no longer possible? Mm-hmm. But so I don't know. I don't have a plan for the blog. Uh, a lot of what I was doing there just took me, kind of led me into insight seminars and what i've created there is another blog that's tied to something called insight items which is uh, just a series of texts on the subtitle is insight items uh for educational iconoclasm so people are writing texts uh, i get some through the creative commons um, about the possibility of creating educational environments that are somehow resisting the status quo and opening people's eyes to possibilities and so forth, yeah. that sort of thing. So there's some overlap now, but sometimes the, the main the, the, the main venue for, for the thing, the idea or whatever, is one of these other blogs, websites, rather than speculative non-Buddhism. Okay. Okay. Yeah, um, thinking about the willingness and unwillingness of people to participate in these projects, I think there are various factors at play. Um, one of them, I think, is that, that willingness to in- embrace a sort of creative approach to thought that we were discussing before. And another one, I think, relates back to where we started this conversation with, which is the fact that, you know, the structures of systems of, of practice, of education, of dissemination of knowledge and so forth don't allow for it. If I think about my own relationship with writing, it's it's difficult to find the time within the sort of overwhelming sense of commitment to so many things that, that life demands to give adequate space to that creative space of thought and innovation in a sense, yeah? I, I know, yeah. Um, that's a real issue. Um, I kind of have created a life for myself where, you know, that that's the proper use of my time. You know, mm. I stare out the window for many hours a day. That's my work. You know, <laughs> I mean, trying to think of something or uh, I, I play around with ideas, but I understand, you know, Marcuse had some comment, pisses a lot of people off, but there's a lot of truth of it. If you understand it in the context, he meant it something to the effect that a person who has to earn a living is incapable of a life. 
And it's mm-hmm. kind of this this Marxist idea that if we're if we're forced to work so many hours a day, to give so many hours a day over to you know wage slavery, then we're alienated from our potential, our desires, our interests, our, our capacities for, for imaginative creative work. It's kind of that Marxist idea, and there's a lot of truth to it. It sounds a bit elitist and snobby. But again, it's coming out of a way of thinking that says, can we imagine a world in which people do not have to say what you just said? You know, I'm working so much that I don't have time to do what I feel like is really mm. my work, you know, my calling. That's a shame. And maybe part of what we're doing is working towards a world where we're not so alienated in that manner. But mm. having said that, I was originally doing four-week sessions for insight seminars mm-hmm. originally actually the first one was six weeks and then i did five weeks because it's a struggle for people a lot of the people come in are working people and i just started doing these one-off things on weekends like saturday 10 to 3 or 9 to 2 or something like that the idea that you can't take time out of your busy work day and it's like a you know, immersion and, and serious thought and communal engagement and really getting your brain working and your creative juices flowing. And who knows if that has, might ultimately have some longer term effect on how you order your life. Uh, but I, I agree with what you're saying. And, you know, it's not a good thing that so many people are, are alienated in this manner because of the need to earn a living. I mean, I, I read today that Jeff Bezos, is that his name? The Amazon guy? Mm-hmm. Guess how much he earns a day, according to this article I read in Common Dreams or whatever. Take a guess. A God day. Knows. A Take, day. Yes. Mm, I don't know. Maybe a, a million dollars? <laughs> $275 million. What? And a very large percentage of – he's the richest man in the modern age, supposedly now. Mm-hmm. And a, a, a significant percentage of his workers are on food stamps. Yeah. It's outrageous. You kind of got two choices, right? One is that you cope with this kind of lifestyle by, you know, adopting practices, whether it's CBT or mindfulness or it's pills sure, or, you know, hedonism and escapism or whatever it is. Or, you know, you get pissed off and you recognize that really we have no other choice but to try and fight for a better world. And, and perhaps that goes back to where we started the discussion with, which is that the younger generation, in a sense, are, are obliged to step up and take on that fight, whether they want to or not, because they've got no other choice. Right. Um, you know, and there's a whole, obviously, a philosophical discussion about, you know, the duties of man, right? Yes. Ethical commitments. What is it we are actually, what is demanded of us yes. as citizens, you know, who are part of a global species that... Yes that can only get by by ignoring each other in a sense, right? That's yes, the whole alienation yes. ideal. I'll just mention in that regard, I'm actually putting together a seminar now. Um, I have to find funding for it because I want to attract these young people you're talking about. And it, it came, the idea came out of this meeting I went to at a local bookstore called The Wooden Shoe, which is a, an old anarchist bookstore. It's been there since the 70s, or maybe even since the 60s. I started going there in the 70s. Uh, but there was there was this like raw energy of these young people who were, they felt despair and hopelessness, but they were channeling it through activism and so forth. So uh, me and the leader of one of the groups there uh, called Radical Education Department got this idea to put together a seminar on anarchism. One thing I was thinking when I heard these people, these young people talk was that the one thing I could offer them is education. Like a lot of them express interest or, you know, in the history of radical thought and so forth. And this person I'm working with, he works, he's a philosophy 
a philosophy professor, but he says, you know, there's certain things you just cannot teach in the university. So something like history of anarchism, or maybe read Kropotkin or anarchist thinkers or something, tying it to, you know, teaching it or offering it to these people who are doing this actual work on the streets, you know, direct action kind of work, but who couldn't afford kind of, you know, I'm charging 80 or $95 a seminar. We're trying to find funding for that to make that happen. I would like that sort of thing to happen a lot more uh, with these seminars. So it's not, a lot of what I'm doing is sort of liberal, humanist kind of humanities education, and that's all in good. I love it. And we're always trying to tie it to both self-help and kind of a, an awareness of, you, know, you you alluded to this earlier, not using the term, but awareness of you know biopolitics or the way that we no longer need authorities to tell us what to do because we just we're obedient subjects ourselves because of a mindfulness practice or whatever else it is and to to start imagining uh, venues or or actions or whatever for change um so that that's happening but then site seminars it's it's more i'd like to take it in a more overtly like hard left uh direction <laughs> in that regard as well as the okay other, yeah yeah, anarchism's a funny one. Um, I know I know something about it, but not a huge amount. I, I do have a vague memory of reading that uh, Noam Chomsky defines himself as an anarchist. Is that correct? It is correct. Yeah. yeah. What does he mean by that? If you could, if if you know, and if you could say so in a relatively succinct way, in a very simplistic, succinct way, it means. Let's not say I don't say he Chomsky. Let's just say saying you're an anarchist. I mean, what, yeah. what it can mean, among other things, is that. You um, want to create environments that are that are non-hierarchical, that are horizontal. Power is horizontal. There's this idea of Kropotkin-inspired anarchism is very much the idea of mutual aid that people will cooperate. They want to cooperate. He would even try to show historically people have done very well in history when they've cooperated, rather than as our current neoliberal masters tell us, compete. You know, neoliberal dogmas, people do best in competition with one another. So an anarchist believes that, that there may be someone who rises to be the leader in any given situation. I mean, you're not going to like, it's not, right, it's, it's not it's not idiotic. It says any, everyone, anyone and everyone's capable of the same sorts of things. It just says that no one holds authority over anyone else and that we work in cooperation with one another to, to attain our desired Ends, uh, individual and collective. It's a lot of ideas like that. And it, it seems kind of silly to say you're an anarchist in a certain way. It's kind of like saying you're a poet or something these days. But to me, what it means is this is how I aspire to act in any given situation. Like, I, I enact anarchist principles in the classroom. I mean, I'm obviously the authority there, but I don't exert authority in way, say, a kind of capitalized version of the classroom would be running the taskmaster, doling out rewards if they perform properly, et cetera, et cetera. Um, again, it's like with this darkness and pessimism ideas, it's, it's, it's more an attempt to model a form of thought that could give rise to kind of ethics or action in the world. There's a lot of disagreement among anarchists. There are different schools of anarchism. There are anarcho-communists. So anarchists also aren't interested in in, in state formations. They think we, we need to operate without large states. They think we need to operate in, in localized uh-huh. terrains where different localities have shared, the people within them have shared interests, and, and those interests differ slightly from people in other localities. And 
I mean, in some sense, it's an unrealistic kind of utopian form of thought, but I, right, I, which is what I wanted to say. Yeah. Well, I, I approach, but see, but see, so, so the one thing is the fact that it's a ridiculous sounding utopian form of thought is all the more reason for striving for something like that. It just tells us how locked in we are to a certain way of being, thinking, economics, you know, in, yeah. engagement with one another. And the other thing I'd like to say about that is I never, I treat my politics based on the, the kind of world I would like to see, like not the kind of world. So that, that's, again, going back to the heart of this, the pessimism idea is that, uh, is that you, you're, you're working with an, you're not, you're no longer working with an idea of what must be produced. And I'm doing this because there's this fruit or result at the end of it. It's very Beckettian that way. Like, yeah, I don't know what, what's the adjective of Samuel Beckett. It's very much, I can't go on. No, it's just impossible. I can't, and I will go on kind of mentality. Hmm. Um, so, you know, you can be an anarchist in the way you interact with people, the way you operate as a human being without, um, um, you know, really working to make this some sort of world order within your lifetime. And that's, mm -hmm. that's pretty frustrating if that's your goal. Yeah, or deadly. <laughs> Dead, deadly, too. Well, that, and yeah. the very fact that it is deadly, like a lot of these young people I'm telling you about, I, wouldn't, I can never do that anymore. Like they're really putting their bodies on the line. The, the cops show up, they, they bash them on the heads, they arrest them. Um, so, again, that's not a reason not to entertain these forms of thought to me. It's precisely more evidence that we should be entertaining these forms of thought. You know, the fact that I have people writing stuff for me under with just fake initials because they don't want to be seen in the university for what they're writing. What, what is that? What kind of... Uh, you know, liberal universe, you know, environment is that, that they're engaged in, that they have to sort of hide their identity if they say certain things. I mean, to me, that's all the more reason to call this stuff out rather than to yeah. shrink from it and retreat from it and say, well, it's just impossible. There's no other, there's no alternative. There's no other way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, anarchism as a strain of thought, you know, pops up all over the world and throughout history, right? Sure. I mean, you know, we see we see forms of it within Buddhism, and they're often some of the more interesting That's developments right. yes. in terms of people making radical breaks from the consensus. Right. Um, you know, so there's certainly that, that that some elements of that seem to be present in your work as a whole. But maybe it's this um, this simple distinction that a lot of people find quite difficult, which is to to take an idea as a fixed form that must be implemented or believed, and then you know taking a more ethical approach of acting as if, which right. seems to be what you're you're arguing for. And then, in a sense, yes. you know that's that's a creative ground of exploration, right? It's not indoctrination and ideology fixing the subject again, right? It might even be one step beyond acting as if. It might be act act simply acting. So. Uh, it, it's simply enacting or embodying certain principles. Uh, a lot of times the students are confused by my behavior and the, the, the sort of the structure I set up in the classroom because they're not familiar with it. And, and I often sometimes, even if it's appropriate, will point out the kind of the way that the classroom structure just replicates the ca capitalist system. And that if we want, so like politics is even there in the classroom. 
I went to an anarchist high school. I was shown on a daily basis how this stuff can be real. It was called Our New School. It was in New Jersey. It only lasted a few years. I couldn't graduate from it because it closed down. But I learned an awful lot. Sometimes I call it a democratic education because uh, anarchism really believes in a kind of a genuine democracy, uh, egalitarian democracy. Sometimes I call it anarchist, but it's hard to get parents to send their kids to an anarchist school, right? you could say that again (laughs) i did ask you in an email um and you're aware of this i wanted to ask somebody who knows the work of this man a bit better than i do um about a german philosopher or cultural critic who's peter sloterdijk i think that's how you pronounce his name more or less in the english vernacular um his book you must change your life has received a lot of positive praise from various corners and two folks who've mentioned the book to me at least were um Hokai Sibol a past guest and then I also found out that Ken McLeod is also a fan of Peter's work and I know that he's influenced your thinking as well but if I'm honest with uh, the audience I've struggled with his work. I picked up his book, You Must Change Your Life. It's certainly not a self-help book, but it seems to pick up on many, many interesting themes. I just couldn't get into it. And I wonder if you can help me, Glenn. Could you help me get to grips with it, find a way into it, or perhaps understand a couple of his core ideas that are so interesting to so many people at this time? It is very difficult. I read about You Must Change Your Life, and I thought, oh, this would be perfect for this graduate seminar I was doing um, in the institute. And so I went ahead and ordered a book. I read some stuff and I read some reviews. I was like, yeah, this is going to be great. And I, I got the book and I started reading it. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, I what the hell is this? What's going on? <laughs> what is this about? <laughs> I couldn't understand if he was being ironic in places or his, his voice seemed to keep changing. Like, And he was mm-hmm. taking on the voice of his, his his interlocutor, and then he was critiquing him. And that turns out to be very much a part of his style. And it's often difficult to capture when those shifts are occurring. The introduction to You Must Change Your Life is, is an example of that. I, I couldn't really understand the first time I read it if he was, it was some sort of anti-religion or pro-religion argument. But sometimes thought is difficult, so I stuck with it and I continued to read. I ended up reading through the whole book. And, um, of course, you know, the more you work at something, the more it all starts making sense, and the more familiar you start getting with the language and the style and the ideas and so forth. So don't despair. I mean, I think it's worth the trouble. I'm interested in Sloterdijk mainly for two kind of big ideas uh, that I've encountered in him. The one comes from this uh, book you, you mentioned, You Must Change Your Life, in which he talks about immunology, that human beings develop these immune systems. He, he writes this book, he says the hero of his account in this book is going to be Homo immunologicus, the person who strives after, what's immunologicus, you know, uh, Im- immunity, or is that the word? It's kind of an immun- immunological metaphor operating where human beings develop these ways of fending off danger. And he mentions three basic ones. He only treats one in the book. The whole book is about the third one. The first one is we develop immunological systems, like social immunological systems, like legal systems, educational systems, military systems, governments, and so forth to try to fend off like actual social dangers from other other cultures or whatever. And he, he's going 
is saying historically we've done this as well. And it's, we continue to do this sort of thing. That nationalism is an outgrowth of that, that social immunological impulse in humans. The second one he mentions is symbolic or psychological, that we develop ideas and concepts, you know, like God, the big other, nirvana, mindfulness, or whatever, that sort of create a kind of armor against fear related to cosmic uncertainty and all that kinds of stuff. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. And, and he said, so it's, it's an immunological project. We're trying to become immune to those fears and dangers, you know, so much. Of, I mean, the first one you can really see, we really live in a, in an atmosphere of, of fear and we need government and strong government to protect us from you know, the terrorists and all the rest. I mean, sure. The second one's certainly obvious and the proliferation of, you know, spiritual religious ideas in our midst. Uh, the third one, though, is the one that he's interested in, and that is he he uses an old term. It's somewhat controversial. It's it's called anthropotechnic, and it basically means that we develop these forms of practice that optimize our immunological status. So. It's not just ideas that we hold or beliefs like that second one, but it's it's actual, you alluded to it earlier, actual forms of working on ourselves, practice. He, had, he says somewhere else something to the effect that, that it's necessary to pass from being a formed subject to a, a forming agent. And that's what he's interested in here is, is this idea that society and the social environment will form us into certain kinds of beings, beings that it thinks are prone to this immune system, uh, but that in order to become you know, viable agents, we need to get, become involved in, in forms of practice that enable that. And that's what this book is all about. It's all about anthropotechnics or the human being in some sort of training, some sort of practice regimen. Mm-hmm. Does he have an ideal of, of what the person can be through these practices? Does he have specific practices that, in a sense, not necessarily explicitly, but he promotes or considers to be effective or or good or, or whatever? I'm not so sure that that's part of his project, although, it, again, sometimes it's hard to know. Like He, he writes a lot about asceticism and so forth, and it, you get the impression that he's in favor of it, like the you know, ascetic practices that burn off psychological or emotional or whatever impurities it's hard to know sometimes at least for me whether he's actually condoning something or recommending it or just kind of giving an account of it he's criticized from the right and the left for his work so that that to me says there's people, a lot something of people are interesting there's something yeah. ambiguous uh, going on in there right yeah um but i wouldn't see him so much as someone prescribing outcomes as someone who's sort of doing a sweeping analysis of ways people have gone about thinking about uh, human formation. And there are examples in there, like it starts with Rilke, from which the, the line comes, du must dein Leben and then you must change your life. That's one. That's the last line of one of Rilke's poems. Uh, he talks about Charan in there. He talks about Buddhism. And, you know, he comes out of an Indian training himself. He was a very devout disciple of Rajneesh, one of the, was it Osho? I think maybe? it was Osho. Osho, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Incredible, right? So, <laughs> it kind of is. So what's interesting about him then, I'll just add this very quickly, and I'll tell you another one more idea that I find interesting in him is, is he's familiar with this 
these Eastern forms of thought, yoga, meditation, and so forth. But he's also, of course, a, you know, a student, a master of Western philosophy. I always find it interesting when people bring these two together. I have someone doing a seminar coming up who's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She does like hardcore cognitive science, uh, artificial intelligence stuff, you know, theory of consciousness stuff. But she's also a, a huge practitioner of yoga. I find that really interesting. And Insight Seminars is also interested in the confluence between the, the two, like hard theoretical thought coming into contact with really what's generally like untheorized or under-theorized forms of practice, Eastern or Western. So Sloterdijk interests me for that reason as well. So I guess that the main idea there is the idea of the anthropotechnic, that human beings, they're malleable plastic entities who are formed. And being formed, they're, they're, they're infinitely formable. But that involves a kind of regimen of practice. And it's up to the person to figure out what that regimen might look like and, and towards what ends. So that's an idea that interests me, as you know, because my interest in Buddhism, the notion, nature and notion of practice. Does that help or a little bit? Yeah, I, th I think that's partly what I'd intuited from, from what I'd read about the book. And I just hoped, I had hoped to be able to get into that with him when I read the text. You might want to read the, the but, introduction over again. Because, yeah, I mean, so yeah. Just to let you know, one thing is he's, he's, he's it's not anti-religion. It's, it's saying that we make this mistake in thinking that religion is obsolete and so forth. No, religion, the, religion is obsolete. So there is no such thing as religion. That's a category error. What there are are systems that systems of pra there are forms of practice. So even to be, you know, a practicing Christian is is to be engaged in an anthropotechnic. You're formed via your participation in the concepts and the community of whatever branch of Christianity it is. So he's just saying that religion is a is a is a is a unfortunate category that we work with. It's rather we should start thinking of these things as anthropotechnic. So again, we could talk about mindfulness and Buddhism in that sense, and it would be a slightly different kind of conversation from thinking about it as kind of you know religious systems or something. But like what do these actually produce as anthropotechnics, as as ways of forming the human being, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Just real quickly, the other the other idea that from Sloterdijk that interests me, it's from another book. It's translated into English as the art of philosophy. Um, in German it means it's it's something quite different. It's it's something like thinking in Suspended animation or something like that, thinking of shine toad. And just very, very quickly, because it's related to everything we've been talking about here. He, he's talking about this old idea in Western thought of the epoche, E-P-O-C-H-E with like an accent over the E, epoche. It's an old Greek word. Basically, in this book, he's arguing that the university is or should be, maybe once was and could be again, the big institutional epoche of, of the West. And an epoche, I think of meditation as a potential epoche or insight seminars as an epoche. And what he means by that is it's just a space of removing yourself from the demands and the forces and the tensions and, and needs of everyday society and going into a space of thought and exploration where possibilities might emerge divorced from those pre-given 
demands and needs and so forth. That's the epoche. And it's, it's a little bit the idea of the old ivory tower, you know, that it's a space removed, but it's very much tied to the further idea that, no, you always must go, you know, like the old Zen idea, you know, you, you go on top of the mountain and attain awakening. And then at the end of that, you walk down into the village kind of idea. So I like this idea of the epoche. Um, I like I like working with it as a concept. So that's another that's another sort of theme of his that pops up here and there. Great, yeah, and I think I've I've sort of picked up on that throughout much of your writing, and I think it would be good for listeners to realize that if they're interested, they can come along and uh, experience some of that on the fourth of August if they're in Philadelphia. Right, they can check out the website and uh, participate. Glenn, I think we're coming to the end of our time. So um, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much, Matthew. It's a real pleasure talking to you. And uh, we'll catch you next time on the Imperfect Buddha podcast with Ron Purser. And we'll be talking about themes directly related to much of the content of this discussion. We'll be looking more thoroughly at neoliberalism, mindfulness and Buddhism. And folks can check out the article I wrote on that topic as an introduction at posttraditionalbuddhism.com. Bye for now. Thank you.